You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Thanks to Beyond Zero for another great show and going out across Australia via the community radio network. You're on 3CR and welcome to Left After Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard and I've been hosting the show for Susanna Duffy and the team who will be back in a couple of weeks. Today is May the 1st, International Workers' Day, when people around the world celebrate workers and the movement that campaigned for decent conditions and pay for workers, a struggle that is by no means over. Later in the show, we'll hear from Lynn Fritchie about the rise in silicosis among Australian workers and the interim advice to the Minister for Health from the National Dust Diseases Task Force, a bit disappointing, it seems. Lynn Craig from the University of Melbourne looks at how Australian women's unpaid labour affects their superannuation. Hospitality worker Paul Johnston gives a personal account of work in the industry and the impact of COVID-19. Everything was just kind of ripped out from underneath you. It was really sudden. It hit like a punch to the face. It just happened so quickly. And coming up next, we're going to hear from labour historian David Palmer, So grab your coffee or tea or whatever you're drinking at this time in the morning to honour International Workers' Day. May the 1st, exercising for your rights activity at 8-hour monument, corner Victoria and Ligon Street in Carlton. Masks, black and red clothes and posters optional. Social distancing in force. 5.30pm Friday, celebrating International Workers' Day, leave no worker behind, a 3CR supporter. So do get down to Ligon Street. That Friday is today. What a great thing to do on International Workers' Day. Now, as promised, Dr. David Palmer is an international labour historian, and he's an associate at the University of Melbourne. He spoke with me last Friday about the history of May Day. May Day, which is International Workers' Day historically, began in Chicago. It was 1886, a huge protest march down Michigan Avenue of 80,000 workers. And Chicago was was the center for um, American industry. Uh, it was the rail hub of the entire country. And that rail hub was the connection into the whole food basket west. You know, the, the meatpacking plants, wheat came in. And there was all kinds of manufacturing. Workers had been organizing, especially they wanted an a eight-hour day. There was this big, big protest march down Michigan Avenue. A couple days later, some workers who went on strike at the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company in Chicago. Police ended up attacking the strikers. A number of strikers were killed. So then on the 4th of May, there was a huge protest against the police brutality in Haymarket. A bomb was thrown into the crowd, and it's suspected that this was either the individual anarchist or a provocateur. A number of police were killed and several of the strikers. They arrested hundreds of the strikers, including the leaders, and later some of those leaders were executed. This built 
a whole new form of solidarity in the American labor movement. And in 1888, two years later, the American Federation of Labor, which was probably the most conservative of all the federations, designated May 1st would be International Workers' Day in 1890. So they endorsed it. So you get the conservative labor movement that's endorsed it. But then over in Paris in 1889, the International Working Men's Association, which had been associated with Karl Marx, the second international, endorsed it as International Workers' Day or May Day. What's interesting is you have this connection between workers' rights and this emerging working class political movement went internationally. For Australia, it's interesting because May Day was different. In Australia, the the eight-hour day actually began from a protest in 1856 when stonemasons walked off the job at University of Melbourne. I walked past this stonemason wall regularly. They were protesting for the eight-hour day. They basically won it in the building trades. Pretty much the entire sector of the building trades in the Melbourne area had got the eight-hour day. 1858. And by 1860, it had spread to other industries in Victoria. Nationally, the eight-hour day was not achieved in Australia until the 1920s. In the United States, the eight-hour day was not put into law until 1937 under legislation under the New Deal. So this is a long, long struggle. As far as International Workers' Day and May Day, in neither Australia or the United States today is it a national holiday. In Australia, it's only in Queensland and Northern Territory is it recognized as uh, International Labor Day. And part of that with Queensland is because Queensland really was the heartland of the Australian Labor Party political power connected to the Australian Workers' Union in the 1880s and 90s. And this is because Queensland was the center for shearers and metal mining. So the AW, the Australian Workers' Union, was built on that rural working class constituency. And in a strange way, that tradition continues today. But nevertheless, trade unions in Australia and the United States have huge marches to recognize workers internationally. David Palmer an international labor historian and associate at the University of Melbourne. Now, I asked David where May Day is celebrated now. It's an official state holiday in a number of countries, and these include Austria, Bulgaria, Belgium, Czech Republic, France, Germany. Previously, both in East and West Germany, Um, And now that it's been united for a number of decades, it's still celebrated as International Workers' Day. And that's because the workers' movement has always been very strong in Germany. Iceland, Italy, Poland, Portugal, and Spain are interesting. It was basically abolished and not allowed during the fascist dictatorships. But once those dictatorships had ended, democracy came to both Portugal and Spain. Now it's celebrated as International Workers' Day. Sweden and Russia, interestingly enough, it's still a major holiday in Russia. What's interesting is where it's not celebrated, which is England and the United Kingdom. And this was, you know, Marx was living in London when he wrote Capital. And the British labor movement is huge, right? But basically, May 1st is seen as the beginning of spring, and it's a bank holiday. Oh, that tells you about a bit the Tory tradition in England, which is 
alive and barely alive and well today. What's fascinating is almost all countries in Asia, and one you would not even think was the case, celebrated as International Workers' Day. The obvious ones, of course, are China, India, Vietnam, North Korea. Other countries include Indonesia, Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, the Philippines, and South Korea, where it's a paid workers' holiday, but not a national holiday. How has COVID-19 affected our thinking about labor, let's just say in Australia? Well, there's the whole thing of essential workers. The government, the Morrison government, along with the other state governments, had defined essential workers, the workers that we need for survival, all medical staff, anyone connected to medical delivery, food service people, whether they're you know on the farms or whether they're in retail or whether they're delivering food. And then, of course, police government workers. But my view is, is that we have to look at essential workers in a different way. Every worker is essential. Even if you have all these survival workers on the job, the economy is in hibernation. So every single worker is essential in terms of human rights. Everyone has the right to have a job, but also because Economies don't work unless you got workers. People in the arts are actually essential. Imagine if we were going through this and there was no recorded music, if there were no TV shows, if there were no films, and, you know, and writers. If people think the arts are essential, well, you just take the arts out of your life and good luck. We have to think of it in a bigger way. And that's why... This pandemic is so interesting is because, hello, I think Karl Marx was onto something, you know? If you don't have workers, there's no value to your economy. I think in Australia, there's a growing concern, and it's really, really obvious that there's a lot of people who work very hard. The majority of them are young, and it's casual labor, and it's everywhere. It's in every single sector. There's not one sector of our economy where it's not a factor. Outsourced job. Somebody's casually getting no benefits. Another person's permanent, but they're doing the same job. That makes no sense. All the young people in hospitality, now people say, oh, just pouring beer and all that. Well, the skills that people have in hospitality, whether it's chefs, whether it's making cocktails, you know, this is part of our life. I came to Australia in 1992 for an academic job. And I came here because I had looked for work, permanent work in the university sector for a year and I applied to over 100 jobs. Everything was casual. So I went to Australia because I could get a permanent job. Now in Australia, the same thing has happened. All of these permanent jobs are fading away. We don't need to be like the United States. We need to move towards permanent, secure employment, particularly for young people. May 1st, International Workers' Day, is a time we can really raise that issue. Dr. David Palmer, an international labor historian and associate at the University of Melbourne. And his latest project is investigating the history of forced labor, in particular laborers brought from Korea to Japan before and during World War II. So that's something that'll be interesting to hear about in the future. Coming up next, hospitality worker Paul Johnston. You're on 3CR. 
Listen up, you're tuned to 855 Community Radio 3CR for May Day. Today we're celebrating as workers everywhere remember the proud past and push ahead to build a strong future. Keep tuned to 3CR and supporting May Day. Benefits and rights that you might take for granted. Unions are the voice and silent we'd be stranded. You should be treated fairly, stand up and demand it. Who will represent me when... Have you heard it on the news? About this fascist growth thing? Evil men with racist views? They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on 3CR. The show is Left After Breakfast. I'm Judith Peppard, and next up, I'm speaking with Paul Johnston. Paul has worked in hospitality for 18 years, in Perth and in Melbourne, and he spoke with me via Zoom on Tuesday. I asked him about his experience in the industry. The the big guys, I've worked at the Convention Centre, Royal Melbourne Hospital. The bulk of the last 10 years have been for a catering company out of North Melbourne, which I'd describe as a medium-sized catering company, and for a semi-fine dining restaurant on Flinders Lane for a couple of years as well, which I really, really enjoyed. Right, so quite a broad range of experiences and backgrounds. How would you describe your work? Like, what's, what does a typical day look like? Depends on the industry that you're in. If you're in catering, you normally get there really early. Really early is like what time? 6 a.m. 5 a.m. if there's something going out early or whatever time you need to be there. I had a couple of stints back in Perth where I was doing midnight till midday. That was during the uh, the Royal Show. By the time 6 o'clock came around, I had to have everything ready for all the shearers and carnies and whoever else was in the showground needed some lunch or breakfast or whatever. It sounds like it could be pressured. In catering, not too much. You've got more of a chance in catering to use your time management. In restaurant, fine dining, yeah, it's pressure. Yeah, for sure. What do you enjoy about the work? I mean, you've said certain jobs are particularly enjoyable. What, what is enjoyable? It's really good people. So working in the hospitality industry is kind of like traveling without going anywhere. You just meet all sorts of people from strange parts of the world, and that's a really enjoyable aspect of it. Uh, you eat well. You usually get to have a laugh along the way. Most places will sort you out with a drink at the end of the week and you have a bit of a social. And if you can manage to keep things going well, it's really enjoyable. Everyone's got a sense of humour. It's it's a great industry to be in. It really props up a lot of students. And with a bit of flexibility, it's really great for people that have children, maybe they're carers. It's great because it's there. It's really accessible for anyone. Oh, up until six weeks ago it was. It sounds like an industry that you've enjoyed being part of and involved in. I'll be honest with you, Judith. I think if it wasn't for the hospitality industry and its habit of taking in renegades along the way, I'd be in jail. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, I don't think I'm the only one who's changed the way they exist 
because they found some work in hospitality, you know. But that, that's just my personal story. I got into a bit of trouble when I was a teenager and figured out when I was about 18 or 19 that, you know, you got to live the right way and earn your own money and stuff like that. And I started with a very small resume with not much of it and started collecting glasses in a pub and ended up behind the bar one day because someone didn't show up and then ended up in the kitchen one day because someone didn't show up there and up the ladder. You mentioned just a few minutes ago until COVID-19 hit. So I'm just wondering how has that affected um, you personally and people you know in the industry? I'm doing okay. I'm in a position where I don't have children. Got a very good relationship with the owner of the property and the real estate agent. So they've both contacted me saying, look, if it gets to a point where you can't or you're struggling to pay the rent, contact me straight away. I'm a bit bored. I know some people are really struggling. Are you in touch with other people like that you've worked with? I'm still very much, very much in touch with the people that I was working with six weeks ago. That's because... You know, when you, you go to work somewhere and you work somewhere for a couple of years and you, you've done your thing and you decide to move on and you, you hand your notice in and it's all very organic. It's like, oh, well, your time's done. It's been amazing and everyone says goodbye. And this time around, everything was just kind of ripped out from underneath you. It was really sudden. It hit like a punch to the face. It just happened so quickly. Two of the girls I was working with, one was from Cyprus and the other one's from Colombia, and they were both in the middle of their visa sponsorship applications and they don't know what's going on now. They're not allowed to work for anyone else. They've got no money coming in. They're they're in limbo. And I think they'd be among the people who can't benefit from the job seeker or job keeper programs that have been put in place. No. I think as recently as last week, they may be able to access their own superannuation. But, you know, you're just borrowing money off your future self. You're spending your own super. It's a sorry, but it's a bloody stupid idea. Lots of people have commented on what a stupid idea it is. And so, what are your plans, Paul? I mean, you said you're bored, so I think I'm benefiting from that because you've made some time for this interview. So, thank you so much. I've got a tiny bit of study left to do. My training provider has managed to stay with me, and despite the fact that I'm not working, I can still get my study done. And that's coming really close to coming to an end. So that's what I'm focusing on at the moment. What are you studying? Hospitality. Commercial cookery. Of course. My eyesight at the moment is on the spring racing carnival. Now, I'm not a huge fan of horse racing, but it's a big deal for the hospitality industry in Melbourne. I feel if the spring racing carnival can go ahead leading up to the Melbourne Cup, if the Melbourne Cup can occur, I think that's going to be a really positive launching point for the hospitality industry to come back to life. I'm not waiting on it. There's sectors of the industry that are still operational and very busy, like uh, everything within aged care and hospital, food production, and probably schools going to come back soon. So all the, the private schools with boarding students, they'll probably start looking at people soon. So there's, there's going to be work slowly become available. There's just going to be a lot of people applying for that work. And there will be a lot of people looking for those jobs. And a big thank you to Paul Johnston for offering his insights into the industry and much more going on there than I initially realized, that's for sure. And so many different people involved and affected in different ways. And good to find out how he's experiencing the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and also some of the people he worked with just um, a little over six weeks ago. 
And just after this announcement, we're going to hear Tammy Nielsen, a Canadian New Zealand performer with 10 Ton Truck. This is an important day because it's about standing up for workers' rights, for justice, for fairness. I don't care what colour someone's skin is, I don't care what language they speak, and I don't care where in the world they came from. Because we as workers have got to stand up for every worker having the right to justice and fairness. And every person that arrived in this country, no matter how they got here, no matter where they came from, having the right to be treated with respect and dignity. Every person, every person has the right to respect and dignity. Born poor, mama was too. Walking through the snow, plastic bags on their shoes. Papa selling houses, sleeping in a car. Four babies in the backseat, underneath the stars. Well, hey, hey, just work a little harder. Hey, hey, punching that clock with work and prayer. And a little bit of luck makes so much money. Need a 10 ton truck. <laughs> He lost his job, put a hitch on the back of mama's little silver dog Drove with nothing but our clothes and guitar Right down to Nashville, gonna be big stars Hey, hey, just work a little harder Hey, hey, punching that clock with work and prayer And a little bit of luck makes so much money Need a ten-ton truck <laughs> Try to make a living, pay dues, get moved right back to the beginning. When the pie gets bigger, everybody wants a slice. What I've been cooking since back in 89. Well, hey, hey, just work a little harder. Hey, hey, punching that clock with work and prayer. And a little bit of luck makes so much money. Need a 10 ton drug. Well, CCR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice. The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From Lost in Signs to Living Free. Done by Law to Defence of Government Schools. Concrete Gang to Chronically Chilled. Mafalda to Music Matters. We're here with compelling content and rousing radio. Listen live or listen later. Tune in, stay safe and keep listening. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. I 
I wanted to have a look at women's labour as part of this International Workers' Day show, and I was assisted in this by Lynn Craig, a professor in sociology at the University of Melbourne. Last week, she published a paper on how little we pay for women's work and the impact that has on women's superannuation and retirement. Now, one statistic that startled me, in the 2020 Gender Participation and Opportunity Index put out by the World Economic Forum, Australian women ranked 49th in remuneration. So I asked Lynn about the Gender Participation and Opportunity Index. There's an overall index, which is the sum total of five scored areas. One of them is education, one of them is health, one of them is political participation, one of them is economic participation. If they're all amalgamated, we are much higher than 49th. But the very interesting thing about Australia is that we rank number one for educational opportunity. We're not particularly high on political representation, but we're number one in gender equality and opportunity or achievement, educational achievement. So what that means is that we have a particularly wide slippage between how we're educating our young women and our older women and all our women and how they can turn that into economic security. Those two stats are absolutely gobsmacking. We're selling all women in Australia the idea that if you educate yourself and and they're responding in huge numbers and their achievement is great, but we're not making it possible to translate that in a practical way in the workforce. So why are Australian women 49th in remuneration and advancement? It's complicated because the, the cost of the daycare is high, but it's also combined with what families are eligible for in terms of tax benefits and subsidies. So combined with how much you lose from family tax benefit part B, if you start using longer type times of childcare, the net gain to you for extra work beyond two to three days a week is nil. A lot of women who do work while their children are young and put their kids into childcare for longer are actually not doing it for any net benefit at the time. They're doing it to keep their hand in the workforce. Not everybody can do that. A lot of women work part-time and care for your children, yourself on those other days. You know, they're taking part-time jobs which have less career development. Your earnings are constrained. And if you're in a job that you can't, you must stay in, then most women who do that are, are not working for anything in the very short term. Most countries' women's workforce participation is, is higher than ours. And what we do with the time that we don't work, we provide care and domestic labour. It's worth noting that men's paid work hours in Australia are quite high too in world terms. So both men and women in Australia work quite hard if you count both paid and unpaid labour. But the gender distribution of that is particularly unequal. And of course, you also have some figures in your paper on domestic work compared to OECD female averages. For Australian women, there's 311 minutes per day compared to 262. So, so what are the implications of that? They're entwined because the people, I think we do more domestic work and care because we do less paid work. Our patterns of generally called the one and a half earner family with one full-time earner, usually the male, one part-time earner, usually the female, that is relatively unusual in world terms. Most countries, women's work participation is is higher than ours. And what we do with the time that we don't work, we provide care and domestic labour. Lynn Craig, 
professor in sociology at the University of Melbourne. One of the things that Lynn points out in her paper is that nurses and teachers earn less than equivalently or less qualified professionals in similar occupations. For example, 32% of police and 27% of ambulance officers earn more than 2000 per week, compared to 10% of nurses and 12% of teachers. Lynn also notes in her paper that near retirement, women's average super balances are less than half of those of men. We've just had a, an experiment in real time of what a contributory superannuation system turns up in a country that has such differences in the workforce participation. We've had long enough now, we're nearly 30 years, and it can't deliver unless the patterns of work and care are changed. What we really need to do is think about the actuality of women's lives and ensure that they've got a comfortable retirement by a livable old age pension policy responses is mainly to think how do we encourage them into the workforce do we give care credits for the time they're out of the workforce it's really tinkering at the edges of a basic misapprehension of women's lives and the fact that doing this unpaid work which is actually vital for functioning of the country so when we think about women's super balances less than half those of men we can think Mm -hmm. about uh, this is how they've been rewarded for their care work That's their subsidy to the country. Yes, indeed. And you also pointed out in your paper that older women are the fastest growing group of homeless in the country. That's a stat we're seeing around quite a lot. Yes, I really loved your quote. Unpaid care has long been taken for granted. Its value discounted by governments as if it were a costless, renewable resource, like a magic pudding. It's like it's just not evident. Yeah. And you've also mentioned that unpaid care isn't counted in GDP figures. The United Nations has been arguing for a while that unpaid work should be counted in the gross domestic product. And the only way to really capture it, because it hasn't got the metric of the money to count, is the time they spend. Time use surveys that capture unpaid work is important everywhere but in the third world you can't really get an idea of the economic activity if you rule out unpaid activities collecting water and, and subsistence farming and that sort of thing so they use time to capture that and the argument is that time use analysis and data should be supplementary and given a putative value so that you could see it more visibly in the GDP. Are there any countries that do include unpaid labour in their GDPs? There are some that include them as satellite accounts. I think the UK has done it and I'm pretty sure that some of the global south do it but the place to look for that to see who does it is likely to be UN statistics. In your paper you highlight that because of COVID-19 it's now recognised that care is an essential bedrock to the economy. Can you just elaborate on that? The government now realise that a lot of the women working in the essential services wouldn't be able to do the services if they were unable to have those children either at school or at daycare. They would return home. The first thing you do is look after the lives and well-being of your family in an absolute safety material sense. That is a prerequisite for the other types of activity that happen. Generally, the workforce couldn't participate without 
the domestic and caring services that happen in the home. And women do that in addition to or instead of their own paid work. Professor Lynn Craig, you've studied the matter, you've looked at the data. What would you recommend to the government? Get the time use data for Australia and then take on board the recognition that the, there's economic production is happening in the household as well as in the paid work. Bring together the information to make sustainable policies about work time and family time. We need as a nation to be aware of how much of our general productivity occurs unpaid. And once we've got that visibly in front of us, we can see why things like women don't have adequate retirement savings because of what they did with the time. Then we can think, well, there's other ways of supporting women because that's a valuable thing they did over their lifetime. We're not going to let them live in cars now because of it. We'll make a sustainable old age income. And I'd also like them to stop making things a business that really are not sustainable, like childcare as a service, like education. I was mentioning before, those high education numbers for women, they're paying for those degrees, same as men for those degrees, and yet the returns to that investment are very different. It often feels to individual women that they're just not getting it right. What, why can't they manage this? And it's largely because the systems are not there to make it doable. If you want women to work, then the childcare system has to be accessible and affordable and reliable. It's a public good. It is a public good, as the government has realised. But for how long? Lynn Craig, a professor in sociology at the University of Melbourne. You're on 3CR. The show is left after breakfast and it's May 1st, International Workers' Day. And we're looking at different aspects of labour in the show today. Coming up next, Professor Lynn Fritchie tells us about the reasons for the increase in silicosis among workers in Australia and what needs to be done about it. But first, here's Nari with House on a Rock. Talking a lot. Am I getting through? I said, I said, I said, I'm talking to you. I'm getting sick in my heart. It only gets harder. What to do? I said, I said, I think we're out on the blue.
Are weird days. Many of my days are weird days actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries, to spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention, we are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down, but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves. Last year on Monday Breakfast, we broadcast three stories about the increase in silicosis in Australia. The last one was on November 18th with Professor Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University, an epidemiologist who studies occupational causes of cancer. So first of all, I'm going to replay that interview with Lynn as it offers important background to the problem of silicosis. Following that, there will be an update from Lynn, who I spoke to this week. Recently, there's been an epidemic of accelerated silicosis in mainly young men. The youngest one that I know of is age 23. It causes fibrosis of the lungs, making it harder and harder to breathe. And if it gets to a stage where it's quite bad, it's impossible to do anything 
other than to have a lung transplant or the person will die. The reason that we wrote this article was because my colleague Alison Reid has been working in the area of asbestos for a long time and she said this is just like asbestos. The evidence is there that silica causes this condition, that high levels of exposure are the things that trigger this condition. What had happened with asbestos was happening again in that a very dangerous product that we know is dangerous was being used. So we've known for at least over 100 years. Well, we've known for hundreds of years that miners who are exposed to silica dust do get lung diseases. In the 1930s, we got to know really clearly that silica was the problem. Over the last decades, there have been occupational health and safety measures which have reduced silica dust in most industries. The problem is that we have become a little bit complacent and then this new product was brought in which has a very, very high silica content, much higher than is found naturally. And it was not picked up by our Oc Health and Safety regulators. It wasn't picked up by anybody until these diseases started happening. And then you needed to look back and ask what's going on. I'm just wondering, what are engineered stone bench tops? What are we talking about there? So these are a new type of stone bench tops. They're very fashionable. They're much cheaper than natural stone. The material they're made of consists of very finely ground silica mixed up with some resin to keep it hard. It's much easier to work with than natural stone, so a lot of people who were using it were people who weren't trained stonemasons who hadn't had all that training about how to protect themselves from silica. The other problem is that they're up to 95% silica. So the dust they produce, instead of being perhaps 30% silica, was 90% silica. That sounds really dangerous to me. Absolutely, and we know that that's going to be dangerous. But because it was used in small companies by untrained workers, this tragedy has occurred. So where does this product come from? Like before people start even working on it and shaping it, where is it made in the first place? There's none that's manufactured in Australia. It comes from China, from Italy, possibly from Spain and Turkey. So it's a new product. People were caught unawares, didn't apply the standard occupational health and safety practices. Is that what's happened? That's definitely what's happened. When these first cases started coming up and people realised that they were coming from working engineered stone, there was an immediate response by the regulators in each of the states who went in and did inspections in kitchen bench top manufacturers and they found some horrendous situations the people working just were not aware of the problems and there was just dust everywhere above what level that it should have been according to the law. How long ago was that, that people recognised that this was a problem? The first paper that was published on it was published from Spain in 2012 saying here's a new product that's causing problems. They noticed it because they had young men coming in with the silicosis. The first time it hit Australia is two or three years ago when these cases started appearing and the response from the regulators was good. They immediately set up inspection programs, went in, inspected these places, put out prohibition notices, put out notices that people had to improve their workplaces immediately. That's encouraging that there's been a swift response. Is it adequate? No. We believe there's enough evidence to show that this product cannot be worked with safely. Even if you use wet cutting, which is when water is spills on the tool as you're cutting, which obviously reduces some of the dust. Even with that, the levels are still quite high. 
So then you need a fan as well. So you need an extraction fan that's taking away any of the dust and the water with dust in it that comes from the working with the product. But even with that, the levels sometimes cannot get below the required level in Australia. And so you need, as well as that, not just a dust mask, but a respirator. And it needs to be a well-fitted respirator. It needs to be a well-maintained respirator. And it needs to be a respirator that meets Australian standards. There are respirators available in Australia which do not meet Australian standards. Right. And is it the responsibility of the, the employer to provide these? The regulations state that it has to be the employer who provides a safe workplace for their employees. So it's up to the the employer to provide all this equipment. One of the problems with manufactured stone is that you're making a kitchen bench top and you might be working on it in a workshop that has wet cutting, that has an extraction fan and using an, a respirator. But then you put it in the kitchen and it doesn't quite fit or the sink doesn't quite fit and you need to work on it to reduce that. And there's no way that in that sort of circumstance it's possible to be well enough protected. So do people have to work on that at the place that it's been installed? That's what they do, yes. The alternative is to take the bench top back and cut it a little bit more at, at back in the workshop and then bring it in again. But we know that people aren't doing that, that they're installing them on site because, of course, it's a lot of price pressure. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Professor Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University about the epidemic and silicosis among people working on engineered bench tops in Australia over the past few years. I asked Lynn about the Dust Diseases Task Force set up by the federal government. So this was set up in response to this issue of young people appearing with a disease that should have been eliminated 150 years ago. These cases, as well as cases of black lung that appeared in Queensland coal miners, again, a disease we know about that is completely preventable. And here were people appearing on doctor's doorsteps with these diseases from history, really. Yes. Have you put a submission in to the task force? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so what have you recommended? That this should be banned. Um, this is consistent with the positions of a number of different bodies, including the Cancer Council and the trade unions. We should ban any product that is above 80% silica. If we say we need to ban this stuff, then we can find a way around all these other issues. I'm wondering, as an epidemiologist and a person who works in the arc health and safety field, how did you feel when you first heard about this? I just felt sick. This is appalling. This is a failure of our regulatory system. We feel like we've got a good system here, and we do, but it's been underfunded for a long time because of complacency, a feeling that we have occupational health and safety under control. A lot of it has been self regulation by industries. Most of the employers try and do the best thing for their employees. There are always cases where people either don't know or they don't care. And that's why we have a system and that's why we need to fund it well and we need to get more expertise into back into our regulators like safe work in the different states so that this won't happen again. Now you mentioned in the states, so is this mainly a state issue? So Oak Health and Safety is, is regulated by states, yes. We have an a overarching coordinating body called Safe Work Australia, but in each of the states it will be things like WorkSafe Victoria. Right, okay. And uh, I guess you, you, you've talked about asbestos earlier. What can we learn from what's happened with asbestos? Two main things. One is it took too long to say there is no safe way to work with this product. It must go 
And the second thing is that there is then the legacy of asbestos everywhere in our country and that that legacy is still causing disease today. So we don't want to continue putting in more and more of this manufactured stone, which then in 20, 30 years is being demolished and people have forgotten how dangerous it is and and it causes disease again. Yeah, so there are implications for the immediate and particularly the young workers, as young as 23 you mentioned. I mean, that's mm. heartbreaking and also for the future. So, yeah, I mean, your quote at the end is, well, it took 70 years for Australia to ban all forms of asbestos and we need to learn from that disaster. We can't continue to let young Australians die just so we can have cheap, fashionable kitchens. Yeah, what price of life? What price of life, yes, for sure. Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University. And in December last year, the National Dust Diseases Task Force issued their interim advice to the Minister for Health. People working in the area of occupational health and safety were disappointed. It was disappointing because it didn't go as far as most of us wanted to. This is such a serious disease. And for them to come out and say, we need to register all the people who have the disease, which is like shutting the stable door after the horse has escaped. And then also to say, we need more research in this area. And that was really their two main recommendations. There was some also about better regulation and better management of the issue, but nowhere near what we wanted. When you say we, are you talking about you and colleagues who were on that task force? Are you talking about people in in the occupational health and safety area? The task force was very limited as to the people who were on it. There were six doctors there were three regulators. So there were no public health people, there were no occupational physicians, there were no occupational hygiene experts, and there were no union representatives, So, and certainly no consumers, so people who were affected by this disease. So it was a very specific panel that looked at very specific things, and they were mainly what the doctors see as the issues, not what people like me as a public health physician think. What would be the difference between what the doctors think and what people working in occupational health and safety think? When you're a doctor, you see the people sitting in front of you who have the disease, and that is the face of the problem for you. And I'm sure all these doctors were horrified by the use of the people who are getting it, by the horrible disease, by the way that it's untreatable. I'm sure that that really made a difference to them. But as a public health physician and also as an occupational health and safety expert, the issues that we're interested in is how to prevent this happening, how to stop it at the beginning. In occupational health, there's the hierarchy of control, which is about how do you control this problem? And step one, eliminate. If you could get rid of this, like we've got rid of asbestos, we're not importing it, we're not using it anymore, that is the best way to solve a problem. We don't want people getting it in the future. I mean, they do mention that there is growing support for elimination of at least some kinds of this artificial stone, and that would be a start. It sounds like a very carefully constructed task force. Is this a delaying tactic by government and industry? It's impossible for me to speculate on the motivation behind this, but it was certainly when public health people saw the composition of the panel, we went, that's a very interesting choice. 
why wouldn't they have people who were on the side of prevention? Anybody that is related to occupational health and safety usually has representatives from industry, representatives from the workers, which is usually the unions, and representatives from the regulators. And here, they missed out on one of the really important areas, which were representatives of the workers and the people who are actually affected by this. That would have, I think, made a big difference to this report. How many more people are likely to become ill as a result of lack of action? It's impossible to tell. If they increase the inspection, suggest in the interim report, people are complying with what they should have been complying with all along. The number will go down, but there will still be people who have been exposed over the past five, 10 years who will be still getting this disease into the future. And what I worry about is that there'll be new people who are also getting it. So who's being looked after in this? Whose interests are being served? I think the importers are. They're not getting a ban on their product. There will be some research. There was also an interesting move earlier this year where the manufacturers of artificial stone requested to the ACCC that they should be able to self-regulate their occupational health and safety. Organisations that I'm part of just wrote in that we have an occupational health and safety regime for a reason, not to let people just say we're going to opt out from it. What were you hoping for from this report, interim advice? I would have liked to see a stronger emphasis on prevention and how to stop it. You know, let's at least ban some of the highest silica-containing artificial stone, let people know that this product is dangerous and can put warnings on it and make people who are deciding on what they want to have in their kitchen aware that this is a dangerous product and it should not be used. It's in everyone's kitchens now and people are going to be removing it in a few years and we're still going to have the problem of this dust. It's the same as asbestos. We've been here before. Lynn Fritchie from Curtin University and a really important issue that we all need to keep our eye on and uh, be writing letters and contacting our members of parliament. This is huge. Thanks again to Lynn for making time to yeah, give me an update on what's been happening. You're on 3CR. It's International Workers' Day and uh, I hope you're celebrating. The show is left after breakfast, and today we've been looking at a range of issues affecting workers. So a big thank you to all our guests, David Palmer, Paul Johnston, Lynn Craig, Lynn Fritchie, and uh, for making time for us today and to talk about issues that they're passionate about and we're passionate about. Here's Archie Roach, Uncle Archie Roach, a legend with Let Love Rule. Oh, when darkness overcomes us And we cannot find our way Although we keep on searching For the light of day And we hear the children crying And we don't know what to do Gotta hold on to each other And love will see us through Let love Kind of 
Struggle. 8.55 on the AM band. The real way to commemorate these things is not just on the anniversary, 
but in the activities that you do every day of the year. What's important is certainly we should have a sense of history and of commemoration and of a degree of ritual. But the important thing is to keep them alive by reenacting them every day in all of our struggles. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.